2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles and this is Ukraine: The Latest. Today, We have an in depth interview conducted by our associate editor Dominic Nichols with Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, the head of Britain's armed forces.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must
0: end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized
2: energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground, to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 19th of December, day 299. Before we go to Dom's interview, here's the latest from Ukraine. Multiple explosive drones attacked Ukraine's capital before dawn on Monday, leaving critical power infrastructure on fire. The drone attack came three days after what Ukrainian officials described as one of Russia's biggest assaults on Kyiv since the war started, and as Moscow presses on with its effort to torment Ukraine from the air amid a broad battlefield stalemate. Ukrainian energy operator Ukranogo said on Monday that emergency shutdowns would be applied in the capital and 10 other regions following the barrage of drone strikes from Russia. Elsewhere, Russian President Vladimir Putin arrived in Minsk on Monday for talks with his Belarusian counterpart Alexander Lukashenko, who has allowed Moscow to use Belarus as a staging ground for its offensive in Ukraine. Footage broadcast by Russian state television showed Putin disembarking a plane at a freezing and snow-blanketed airport in the Belarusian capital and being warmly greeted by his close ally ahead of bilateral talks. Away from Ukraine and Belarus, Russia and China will hold joint naval drills between December the 21st and 27th, Russia's Defence Ministry said on Monday. The joint naval exercises, which have taken place annually since 2012, will involve missile and artillery firing in the East China Sea, Russia's Defence Ministry has said. And now, here's our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols interviewing the head of Britain's Armed Forces, Admiral Sir Tony Radigan. They spoke about the war in Ukraine... Britain's communication with Russia and buying a Christmas present for Radikin's opposite number in Ukraine, General Valery Zalushni.
2: Hello and welcome to The Telegraph. I'm Dominic Nichols, the Associate Editor for Defence here. I'm delighted to be joined today by Admiral Sir Tony Radican, Chief of the Defence Staff for Britain's Armed Forces, the boss, at the top of the tree, in charge of the whole shooting match, literally. We're going to have a chat about a few bits and pieces, end of year, a bit of Christmas, a bit of Ukraine, a bit of a few other bits and pieces in there. Admiral, thank you very much for doing this. Very Sorry. warm welcome to The Telegraph. No, thank you. Christmas, there is always one. Who have you forgotten to send a Christmas card to this year? Uh,
0: I don't know if I've forgotten. We had a debate as to whether or not I should send one to General Gorazimov. Your just, opposite uh, number in Russia. My opposite number in Russia. We thought that that would be inappropriate. And I suppose I'm now racking my brain as to who have we really forgotten. I don't send many, and that's, I'm, I can probably get away with it because we only send a few Christmas cards, and therefore most people, I'm afraid... Fair
2: enough. List. Well, I mean, the postal strike, mine must still be lost somewhere. I mean, <laughs> Is it normal to send one to General Gerasimov?
0: <clears throat> no, but it was just a reflection of an extraordinary year. And February, going to Moscow, meeting him. Several other contacts since. Uh, wanting to maintain those communications with him. And that has to be done on a formal basis. And therefore, a Christmas card wouldn't be appropriate. And it wouldn't be appropriate normally to send one to him. The contrast is with General Valery in Ukraine and... Zelensky. Uh, I penned him a note and I gave him a, a bottle of his favourite whisky, Glenmorangie. And I just had a nice message from him yesterday. He is in the thick of it. I've seen him three times in Kiev this year. That's included going down to his bunker, they change location frequently, and... Part of that is with other chiefs, but is, is sort of giving him our, our warmth and support. It's a personal thing, as well as the professional element of how we're supporting Ukraine's armed forces. But that, that business of writing a handwritten note and giving him a bottle of his favourite whiskey, I think you probably remember from your time, some of those things, when you're, when, when you're away, those, those are really important.
2: We'll come on to Ukraine a little bit later, if, if I may. You say it's been a, an unusual first year as Chief of Defence Staff. Three Prime Ministers, two monarchs, one war in Europe. Not quite the first year in command you were expecting. Which one of those has been the easiest to manage?
0: The, pri- the Prime Ministers have been the easiest to manage, which might be surprising for people. But I, I think if we'd said beforehand, three Prime Ministers, gosh, the, you know, the turmoil that that would introduce and so on, and it may be that my, the, the defence area is slightly unusual, but I think actually there was continuity all the way through. And I re- really appreciate that. That's included a trip to Kiev with Boris Johnson for Ukraine's Independence Day, another trip to Kiev a few weeks ago with Prime Minister Sunak. So that's been relatively smooth. And, that, the, and that's not to say that the others have been a nightmare or anything, but it's just that the inevitably the funeral it's the pace at which everything has to come together an amazing response but it's then the quality right this has got to be impeccable so that's a hell of a pressure and then the ukraine element is obviously that's that's a constant
2: backdrop at the moment how did the two new prime ministers in your tenure respond to your your induction into the nuclear firing chain talk me through sort of mood music in the room as you're explaining the responsibilities there.
0: So, if I concentrate on Mr Sunak, some of it is is the fact that it happens on your first day and you're with the National Security Advisor and the Chief of Defence, and then you have a submariner expert who is in the Cabinet Office, a Royal Navy Captain, and what must be an extraordinary day for any individual when they become the Prime Minister. And you've got, I imagine, you've kind of got things in your own mind that you're going to, you're going to be giving your statements in Downing Street to the nation. And then you're probably caught up in selecting your cabinet and all of the the politics that goes with that. You've obviously got time with your cabinet secretary, both beforehand and on the moment you become Prime Minister. And then with Rishi Sunak, you go into the bowels, as it were, of, of number 10, where it's a room where you can have above-secret conversations. And then you go through with him so that he, he signs various documents, which are crucial because it, it, it's, the, it's a formality of civilian control of the nuclear deterrent and that it's vested in this individual, the Prime Minister. And then you have a conversation about letters of last resort, which are only used in a particular circumstance. And then the Prime Minister has some time as to how he wants to formulate those letters of last resort. And I think it's the importance of being an official and you're in an advisory role. And and I think it must be the weight of responsibility that you're now the Prime Minister And amongst that mass of things that you're responsible for, it includes this phenomenal power in terms of the nation's nuclear deterrent.
2: Are you present when the letters of last resort are written? Is this something that happens later?
0: That can happen later. Prime Ministers can take their time. And I think most Prime Ministers, that's the right thing to do, and then the nobody knows what is in those letters and that's the crucial aspect this is something private to that individual who records their decision for an event that we hope would never be required for that envelope to be opened up and that's almost the sanctity of it
2: for people who do not know what we are discussing here the letters of last resort as i understand it are letters written to the. Be- <coughs> the four commanding officers of the four country vanguard class, soon to be dreadnought class, nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed boats, Britain's nuclear deterrent, giving them orders from the Prime Minister of the day as to what to do in the event of no more messages from London? Yeah,
0: it's a very peculiar circumstance. In the range of the events that might happen with nuclear, which are, are things that are very, very unlikely, you then get to the most unlikely which is that our bomber has no comms. And it's the situation where the inference from that, and that's over, I won't go into the detail, but, but there are lots of ways of checking. And effectively, it's a situation where our own nation may, may have come under nuclear attack or is devastated. And the nation's nuclear deterrent is there and is still functioning somewhere in the North Atlantic. And there's a process whereby the captain goes to the first safe and the first safe has a letter from the first sea lord in terms of the instructions and the formality that the procedures that then have to be followed. And then for the executive order, that is then in a second safe and that's the Prime Minister's letter of last resort.
2: Thank you. We got a bit deep quite, quite <laughs> earlier in this, a bit deeper than I was expecting. Um, so three Prime Ministers, two, two monarchs. Where were you when you heard that Queen Elizabeth had died? And did you allow yourself a little panic in those first few moments?
0: I was with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. We were on our way back from Germany, um, and it was a, you know, a sort of look at Ben Wallace, and um, yeah, it was one of those sobering moments.
2: I mean, it was only a a slightly flippant question. I was always told when I was learning to fly helicopters that in the event, and it will happen, and it did happen, that you have an emergency in the aircraft, allow yourself a second or two of blind panic to get it out of your system and then deal with the problem in yeah. front of you rather than have it linger.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there's a kind of pause. Um, there's a, yeah, there is that sort of yeah, – because it, it sounds so trite because it's, it's, at one level it's predictable and it's not shocking – But when you receive the news, it is slightly gasping.
2: Do you think it will help your relationship with King Charles, that he formerly served in the Royal Navy?
0: I don't think it's the fact that it's the Royal Navy. I mean, he's got a great reputation in terms of his time in the Royal Navy. He was in command of a minesweeper. He has regular reunions with his ship's company. It's broader than that. It's it's the relationship with all of the armed forces. And that he knows us and we know him. And, and it's not just the king, it's the other members of the royal family. We're, we're incredibly privileged to have that closeness, their interests, their knowledge. All, all the chiefs, uh, there were a couple of things around the funeral which I think were quite personal for the chiefs. And I don't want... Yeah, the main role was nearly... When you added, added it all up, it's 10,000 people... It's the security aspect, it's supporting uh, the, yeah, all of the London authorities with millions of people coming into London. So whether it's the long queue from Southwark, it's then the ceremonial aspects and so on. And then for my, my piece was, and also try and get across these, this mass of condolences that you receive as a chief of defence from all over the world. They're, they're really warm uh, and in- incredibly affectionate and almost lenses into how some of these countries view the UK.
2: Did you get one of those letters from General Grasimov?
0: No. No, I didn't. But I'm trying to think... I think Russia was respectful. When you're trying to clock everything, mm. it was noticeable that Russia was, was respectful.
2: What form did that take?
0: I'm thinking of the language that President Putin used. And, I, and, and again, I think that's really important because you, you can the danger with the Ukraine... Russia war, and then our involvement, which is further back, but is, 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 is a strong supporter, and our clarity on that. The danger is you, can't, you, can't, you get so wrapped up in it that you can keep exaggerating, and you need to analyse, but let's not over-analyse, and let's also try and be balanced. And there are relationships that are still ongoing, and right, how can we utilise those, and how can you make the most of
2: it? Bit of a segue, but do you think that's one of the reasons you have not been sanctioned by Russia, that there's just, just a okay. channel... It means it's a message in itself, not sanctioning you, but it also allows interaction that might otherwise not exist. I don't know, is the honest answer. I'd
0: like to think that it is that. I'd like to think... The conversations I've had with General Gorazimov, we've always said that we would communicate that we have communicated, but we wouldn't go into the detail of what we've discussed. And I think he's been very good at adhering to that. I've likewise have adhered to that. I, I would like it to be even more regular communications. I'd like it to be even stronger, even though there might be difficult conversations. But the fact that, that we can communicate, and it's the same with some of the other NATO chiefs, I think is really important. So I'm, I'm pleased that I'm not blacklisted, and I'd like to think that it's, it's that reason. I've, I've just been blacklisted by Iran this week. Oh. I'm um, lucky. Yes. So what? Uh, we um, were well, you know, a holiday. <laughs> we weren't, but it's interesting know yeah, that, 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 that you suddenly pop up that you're on a list and you're, you're blacklisted by Iran.
2: We're halfway down on my first page of questions, so we're racing through them. In an interview this week in The Economist with my friend and colleague Shashank uh, Joshi, General Zeluzny, your, your opposite number in uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, said, I know that I can beat this enemy, but I need resources. I need 300 tanks, 600 to 700 infantry fighting vehicles and 500 howitzers. What more can Britain provide to Ukraine?
0: So we're already providing a lot. We continue to provide. So we've been doing that as a constant. We've upped all the way through. And I, won't, I don't want to go into the detail, Don, but those those responses, those conversations with General Zelushny, trying to map into their plans, trying to understand what what does he want to achieve at the operational level? What's his time scale? How do we then support that? How do we do it with international partners? That's a constant. And so that list there, we, that's, that's not a new list to us. And then, and then we look to respond, but we respond with all of our international partners. So I, I, won't, I won't go into the detail of those individual items, but we should anticipate that we continue to respond to Ukraine in the way that we have done over the last nine, nearly ten months now. And that's both an amazing UK effort, but it's an amazing international effort. And it's not just these lists. It's it's about equipment support. The the tanks that... when My last visit um, to Kiev, and we had this conversation with President Zelensky, how much of it is new tanks and, and gifts in kind, how much of it actually... The tanks that Ukraine has got, or the tanks that Ukraine has captured, it becomes the really effective way is an equipment support. It's about spares, it's about refurbishing, it's about getting those tanks back into the line God, that I have had I to
2: concentrate on logistics.: No
0: no, I agree. It's all, and, but that part of the conversation we're having is which it would that, that might be the fastest way to get the most number of tanks to General Zelushny vice. Right. Let's go back into the locker for a whole bunch of new tanks. Now you might. The chances are you're probably going to need to do both. Mm. But that's that's the detail of what we're trying to do. And then you do that in, on an international scale. And and what's the best way to do that? Is it support all the way through into Ukraine? And do they have hubs where they're repairing and so on? And obviously they do. But but can we speed that up? And can we have a better system of what is it they need? Is it hubs? Um, yeah, on, on the countries bordering Ukraine, uh, and how do we go about that? And then is it right actually? Which which countries have got some tanks, and and is that the best way to, to to
2: support him? You say this military support for Ukraine has been a constant. That's not entirely accurate. I may I may venture. Early in the war, we had Mig Gate, where Poland apparently was offering MiG-29s to Ukraine and the US said no or for whatever reason that didn't happen. It was deemed too provocative or too escalatory or there was something about that type of capability that was not acceptable to the international partners for Ukraine at the time. And yet now we have HIMARS being sent, NASAMS being sent, Patriot missiles, possibly Storm Shadow. So all very, very sophisticated weapon systems. What has changed It's a dynamic thing, and therefore it changes. Sometimes it changes from day to day,
0: depending on the politics. Sometimes it changes from week to week. Sometimes it's changing by the operational ambition and what's going on. But it seems to be, to me, four factors. Support Ukraine, and within that, you're imposing a cost on Russia because of its illegal invasion, and it's got to be seen that that aggression doesn't pay. Avoid escalation and maintain international unity. And that's what you're doing. The danger with... So if you, go, if you go too far out too strongly and that then is really uncomfortable for nation X, and you then start to fracture your international unity, that's not a good place to be. And if you look at it, you know, some elements of this, the, it's been relatively contained in, in geographic terms. We've avoided this being a war within NATO. We've avoided it being Americanized. President Putin would love this to be Americanized or NATOized. So there's a discipline there and then you've got to protect NATO and that eastern flank. but you've also got to support this partner with Ukraine. And so it's this balance and that's I think that's why you've seen some things at the outset would would have been incredible um, but over the course of the war, then you see different responses. And some of the responses are to Russia's further aggression. So yeah, on, the, on that list there, the air, there's a massive air defense effort now. And my worry, that's that's the right thing to do for Ukraine. But it's a defensive thing. You, yeah, we, and, and, and we've got to be very aware of that. It's, all you're doing is better protecting Ukraine from this onslaught from Russia. Now, that's really crucial, whether it's the critical national infrastructure, or it's to to give President Zelensky the authority that he can he can bring people back that have been displaced, and then can that yeah can that's a fundamental for him and his government? Can that then get help the Ukraine economy going? Because that's another way of defeating the aggression that Russia's meted out. But it's defensive, and we've got to acknowledge it. That the yeah, so and then yeah are there other things where Ukraine might be wanting to go on the offensive? How can we help them there?
2: Uh, In your annual RUSI speech, (coughs) Royal United Services Institute speech on Wednesday this week, you praised, quote, the ingenuity, courage and determination of Ukraine and said the brutality of Putin begets resolve, resolve begets support, support begets victory. I'll go with that. But the next one, victory begets many questions. After, however this is resolved, do you think Ukraine should be fast tracked into NATO membership?
0: I'm not going to give you a quick answer on that. I think the correct response with that is a much longer... Because it's quite a profound conversation. NATO's growing with the addition of Finland and Sweden. That's a a significant move in itself. We have got closer to Ukraine. That goes all the way back in recent times, post-Russia's invasion of Crimea, Operation Orbital... A big effort both in terms of land and maritime. 22,000 troops trained since 2014 inside Ukraine. Amazing effort by the British Army this year to train 10,000 in UK. A shift that is happening in terms of the armaments that Ukraine is getting, which is much more NATO-ized by dint of what's gone on. But I think for those conversations, you've then got to look at what's going on in the whole of the Euro-Atlantic security and these balance and shifts of power, and therefore, what are the repercussions of Ukraine joining NATO? because at the same time, you've got 20 nations within NATO all increasing their defense spending. these are These are significant military powers in terms of Finland and Sweden joining NATO. NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO is really clear in terms of its purpose. But we also recognize that, that not all countries, and Russia especially, doesn't see NATO that way. So, we, so, so I think our politicians have then got to balance all of those factors and then have the conversation with Ukraine. And is, yeah, is that the direction? And then is there a timeline that goes with that? But it's not a, right, let's accelerate. Yeah, I think those, those are for politicians to decide. But they need to take into account all those factors.
2: OK, so back back to the military side then. If Ukraine have got Patriot, High Mars, they're buying NASAMs, I think, in a statement of confidence for the future, I think the contract goes out to 2025 to deliver these things. Um, if those systems are not integrated with the yes. same systems in NATO, then it, it, I wouldn't say is it almost worth having them. But I mean, There's a real by, by knitting no. them together, that... that it's not NATO membership, clearly, but is that a security guarantee that that is that is very significant?
0: So I, I'm only pausing because you you used the, the the word security guarantee, and that guarantee is more of the language of NATO and, and Article Five. I think we have to give the the. It's an agreement. It's assurance it's for the ukraine government to have the confidence and for us to signal that russia can't illegally invade again this has been catastrophic for russia i'm near yeah, part of that Russi speech was trying to amplify what a disaster this has this has been for russia and therefore this notion that you can almost casually invade a country and it will all be dealt with quite quickly and you know, my leaders will take control of their cities and then we'll... And just the nonsense of those kind of plans and what actually unravels and how difficult it is to control war and all of those classical elements, where we... That's what I think is happening with Russia's experience of this war. But at the end of it, that's why it's so important that Russia's aggression has been seen to be... Defeated, and that the world learns and Russia learns that aggression doesn't pay. But I think if you're in Kiev, you don't want to rely on that, and therefore you will want to be able to turn round to your partners and know that you're you're being supported, and that might need to be bolstered. And then is that is that is that some integration in terms of airspace? Is it how do we carry on the journey to to for Ukraine with Western kit? But, and you're absolutely right. It's not then right. Let's just pile up, and that's all the same kit as us. It is things like integration, and I know, again, that's a kind of boring word. But it is the yeah, it's airspace, it's situational awareness. You then might get to some other things, intelligence sharing, and those are the fundamentals that then, that then make that kit so much more worthwhile. But that's that's those are conversations to be had. Uh, yeah, as as we get closer to what looks like to be an end.
2: And in terms of any end, in the absence of a UN Security Council-sponsored accountability mechanism, how should Putin and other senior Russian leadership be held to account for this war? Any special carve-out for the ICC? I understand the US are trying to find a way of interacting with the ICC that they hitherto have not done, but some way of of involving the ICC in a post-conflict accountability mechanism. Or is any such talk of this just a, an impediment to peace now, anyway, if Putin sees what well, might I, be lined up for him. Is, is, I, think, no... I, I, I think those mechanisms
0: are in place, oh yeah, I think the implication of committing war crimes, of illegal invasions, and that those, those implications carry on over time, I think has been put in place in the way that you, you saw from, from the Balkans. Those trials in The Hague, that might be a long time after the violence has, has ended, but the international community pursues war crimes and pursues individuals. So whether that's an ICC or whether that's a, some other mechanism, I think that now has become a, as, oh, you know, it's becoming a staple of international relations and international behavior. And Ukraine has some suggestions that they've been putting through the United Nations to, to try to carve out something that isn't ICC, because Russia and Ukraine aren't members, but follows the principles and the mantra and, if you like, the protocols that you see in the ICC. And does that then become the mechanism to hold people to account? But the notion that, that you have these clean finishes, I think, is, is slightly flawed. I think we, you know, they, they, there are implications to what has happened, and they go on in, 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 into time. And you've got an international community these days that has the capacity to follow through and, and, and keep investigating and holding people to account. And we've seen, we've seen that. And I don't know which way it will go and how long that takes and so on. But that liability is hanging there because of what Russia has done
2: not expecting you to comment on an ongoing investigation, but how would you describe the culture in UK Special Forces today?
0: So I think the culture is, is as you would recognise from your service and, and where we think uh, we are now. These are extraordinary people that serve their country in an extraordinary way. And we are very confident of that the right culture exists and We, as this is all the chiefs, we are really clear about ensuring that the reputation of our special forces, reputation of our armed forces stays up here and is super high. And that also the relationship with government and the the license to operate in a particular way that special forces have, that that's also precious. And therefore, it's right when there are allegations and there are concerns that we then, the government announced yesterday a statutory inquiry. We're fortunate to have somebody in Charles Haddon Cave who is so esteemed to, to then conduct that inquiry and our responsibility is that is the same standards apply for everybody and, and if there have been wrongdoings then, then let's root, root that out but also, let's also be super confident about what our special forces provide, what our armed forces provide, what the cultures are, and how that allows us to continue to serve the nation and to serve the government the way that we do. So this is the right thing to do. And this is not some, yeah, it's not the, 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 there's not some anxiety that's loaded here. It's about preserving this extraordinary reputation and this extraordinary licence to operate that the armed forces have, and especially our special forces have. And those are those are precious entities, and and you protect them. And if there are some allegations that have been made, and they need to be re-explored, well, let's do the sensible thing and look again.
2: The dates in the terms of reference for uh, Lord Justice Haddon Cave's inquiry, mid-2010 to mid-2013, is, is that... Obviously we we're in Afghanistan for a lot longer than that. Is that a capacity thing on on Lord Justice Haddon Cave and his team? I or I mean that very that, that sort of is very much suggested of oh, there was an issue with special forces. I mean do you think it was wise to limit the dates to to that time period? Would you welcome the, the dates being expanded?
0: No, I think it's a, it's the correct thing to do. There are there are two particular cases that have that have undergone a, a judicial review and because of those, those have then triggered the need to have a closer look, and 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 so Lord Justice Haddon Cave has had a ha, has, has sort of had a preliminary examination, and recognises that those those two and some others over that period merit a, a closer look, and that's, it's it's absolutely the right thing to do. Otherwise, you that that would be awful for, for these, these these extraordinary people that serve their country. Believe they've done the right thing, and it's kind of right now we're we're just going to. Ha- open everything up and 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 have a look at it that there is that there's a particular reason to look again at some particular instances it's the right thing to do it protects those people it protects the reputation it protects the license to operate it's a responsible thing for yeah, the chiefs with ministers to do, but, but let's keep it bounded because there are particular issues that are being looked at.
2: On to personnel. If people are the military's greatest asset, why are so many living with damp, broken boilers, black mould? I'm getting photographs, anecdotes, messaging of appalling living conditions. And it seems that the MOD Pinnacle, Amy, Vivo, the whole infrastructure side of the business is going badly wrong somewhere why, why why are people living still living in these conditions so we've shifted
0: from one contract to another it's got some issues that we're dealing with it is unacceptable for people to have mold in their homes or the frustration whether it's single living accommodation or families' accommodation where you don't have you don't have hot water for a shower those stories where your yeah, children's bedrooms and they're absolutely freezing that is totally unacceptable we've got to get after it so, we've got a defence infrastructure organisation that is, that is working with the contractors. We quadrupled the number of people that can deal with, with those complaints. We've got a, a waiting list of complaints, so those have now being worked through and they're going down rather than what was being going on over the last month, they were going up, so they're being dealt with. There will be the 24-7 all the way through the Christmas period. So we've upped our game, and that's not going to slow down because because we then jolt into Christmas. So it's it's unacceptable. Our standards are high, and those people, if the organisation's not responding well enough, they also need to use their chain of command because we look after each other no matter what. So that's the response to those issues. The broader piece is we know that we need to continue investing in our estate, and we need to keep making the most of an accommodation offer that actually is unusual for most people in, in, in their walks of life. We subsidise people's accommodation to the tune of 5000 to 20000 a year. We've just introduced, we've forces help to buy as a, instead of it just being for another couple of years, it's going to continue. So we encourage people to buy their own home if they can, so that's, that's up to 50% of your salary depending on where you are on the salary scale, and you get an interest-free loan. That's massively important in terms of where people are and cost of housing now. We then helped in other areas, childcare, wraparound childcare. I was speaking to uh, a sergeant recently. That allows that's about four hundred and fifty pounds a month for him with 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 his daughter. That allows his wife to now go back to work, which allows them to have two incomes and they they can buy their own home. We've capped the cap the accommodation charges at 1%, um, we've capped the, the food charges. 98% of our families' accommodation is either at or exceeds the decent living homes standard that the government has. For single living accommodation, I think it's about it's 90%. So you've got these dreadful cases that we have to deal with, but let's also look at the backdrop. And the backdrop is subsidised accommodation, of the right standard continue to be invested in and that's absolutely right because we we have really talented high quality people we're in a we're in a fight with other organizations for talent and it doesn't match who we are if this is really ropey and we're trying to say we're trying to be we're trying to be modern we're trying to be at the front end of technology and it's a complete misalignment and that it's 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 unacceptable. And it's it's more than just the the particular issue of some poor family worried about their child um, on any day, it doesn't matter whether it's Christmas or whatever, it's the misalignment about who we are and what we are and what we're trying to to instill as to what it means to be in the armed forces.
2: Why do so many veterans and a number of serving personnel complain to me of their experiences, interestingly not the financial outcome, but their experiences more often of the armed forces compensation scheme? I'm told yeah. it's a very adversarial process now. The balance of trying to get value for money for the taxpayer, vice giving too much money away, yeah. is is now too much in in over the other side of of trying to downplay the injury. Putting uh, one chap I spoke to, his 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 hip and femur was shattered by high velocity around Afghanistan. That was downgraded to a broken leg. So it's still got some money, but I mean, it just seems far too adversarial to. Uh, far too car insurance to push the claims down and, and give out the minimum. I'm hearing this time and time again through the, about the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme.
0: So I, I, that might be an area, that, that might be a weak area for me that I'm not... I've, I've heard some of those... I don't, you know, when you say it's as strong as that, I don't know if it's because there were so many cases by dint of the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and my, my worry with them is the, the, the length of time it takes to deal with them and the fact that you are, it does become adversarial and so on, as opposed to our obligation to look after that person, whether they're still in or, or they've left. And, and can we get the right tone? It's yeah, the, same, the same for me was, yeah. If you, want to join, if you want to join the armed forces, we should be laying out a red carpet. You want to serve your nation in uniform, and, and, and that should be the tone. You have been disadvantaged by your service in uniform. We should be coming to you and ensuring that that is as smooth a smoother transition as possible and so, so i i and i the, the examples that you give i probably need to go and go back and have a look at the, at where we are in the system and what's going wrong because again this tone tonal point i absolutely get that that's the bit that frustrates people that they've done this extraordinary sacrifice and we we come across as as if we're quibbling when that poor person is is thinking Shit, i'm i'm really glad i didn't lose my life but please can you sort out my leg but they were prepared to lose their life. And that's the commitment that we have to those individuals. And we've got, to, we've got to get that
2: right. I bet the time has flown. I mean, it won't be much longer before you're thinking about what's next. What are the last bits and bobs you want to see done on your watch? Okay, i Yeah,
0: well, there are lots. So if I said, it's a busy year, It's been dominated by Ukraine, it's 15 overseas visits, three times to Kyiv. It's some big decisions, so some amazing soldiers in Mali and an amazing soldiering. But when you then look at it, the relationship that we have with the Malian government that have shifted to Russia and to the Wagner Group, means that we've had to recommend and government's taken the difficult decision to leave Mali. There are lots of other things going on in addition to Ukraine in the operational space, but in terms of where we're trying to steer the armed forces to the future, we've got this massive programme to modernise and we've got to make the most of this capital investment that's being made, the backdrop of a technological revolution, and have the confidence that this is an opportunity to shift our armed forces for the future. And we stay as this, this incredible reputation that the UK armed forces have, where allies want us to be alongside them, and where we have you know, this, this disproportionate effect when a UK serviceman or woman turns up with their equipment, with their philosophy of war fighting, and, and that's the thing that we keep for the future. And that's why, yeah, to me, the, 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 this agenda is about modernisation and, and having an even better armed forces, more productive, more lethal and more deployable. And that's the journey that we're on.
2: Much, much more to, to, to speak about. I'd love to speak about Mali. You just raised it there. But very quickly, AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US partnership, you said recently that that could be the vehicle for an increased number of submarines and basing in the Indo-Pacific. Are we talking astute-class hunter-killers, Vanguard, dreadnought-class bombers, but increased number of British submarines, possibly with foreign crews serving? And where might these things be based in the Indo-Pacific? So I think we've had two very big... Well, there are two very big strategic deals going on
0: in terms of the Indo-Pacific. You saw it last week with GCAP, the Global Combat Air Programme, with Italy and Japan, sixth generation fighter. These are deals that then shape for the next 50, 75 years. These are big and strategic. There might be other partners that then join, and that's part of this modernisation, that the UK will have a sixth generation fighter, will have an industrial base that supports it, that is at the front end of technology. You've then got this other deal, which is still going through. So that then gives the opportunity for Australia to have nuclear submarines, not nuclear weapons, nuclear submarines and nuclear technology, this precious technology that the UK and America share. And we're talking, how does that help our nuclear enterprise? And what does that mean when we come to replace the astute submarines? So we shape around SSN AUKUS as the replacement, we take the best of, of a combination of, of, of a US, US technology and US inventory blended with British technology, and is that the best route forward for Australia for its future nuclear submarines? And then does that then mean, which is the, the other strategic part of this, how do you link up with Australia and America, but also how do you take advantage of the underwater domain? that we have an advantage over our competitors under the sea, that we know that the world is becoming more and more transparent and therefore that advantage is going to become even more important and therefore does that become an area that we invest in even more. And that's what you then get out of AUKUS, a strategic deal that stretches across the world, a strengthening of our own nuclear enterprise and an opportunity to take advantage of a domain where we excel and we think it will be even more important in the future. And then there'll be the debate about, on the back of that, and that kind of shared investment that's going on, does that then allow us to look at the replacement for astute and how many submarines do we then replace the seven in, in the 2030s with? And I, I can't go into numbers because I think that will be something that we'll look at more carefully as part of the integrated review refresh
2: in March and April. Can we afford the tilt to the Indo-Pacific, 3% GDP on defense is looking vulnerable now and you've just said the Chinese navy might be in the North Atlantic with the melting ice cap so why do we need to go to the Indo-Pacific
0: There's lots of reasons why we go to the Indo-Pacific but also this notion that it's an, it's a, it's an or we st- we're, our primary area is the North Atlantic our primary responsibility is to the UK and our NATO partners and we're the leading European partner within NATO. That's a staple. That stays there. This is an and. And in a world where you're the sixth largest economy, the world's GDP in the next 20 years is going to reach 40 to 50% coming from the Indo-Pacific, and you're a trading nation. You you have interest beyond the Euro-Atlantic. You then also have this extraordinary relationship that one of the ways that we keep Europe safe and protected is this really strong partner called America. And a part of that relationship with America involves being really close and having shared values and interests. And therefore we, wouldn't, we, we shouldn't be surprised that when that really close partner is looking in a different direction and is concerned about the Indo-Pacific and knows that it has to increase its allies and partnership to deal with those security concerns, then it would expect nations like the UK to be closely aligned. And that's what's going on. That's why you see AUKUS, that's why you see FCAS. But it builds on what we've already got, the Five Powers Defence Agreement, Brunei, Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean, the, the establishment of Bahrain as a base in, in the Gulf, the increased investment in Duckham, in Oman, the increased investment in Kenya. Yeah, the UK, the last IR, I think, got it right by just this strange word, tilt. It's a tilt, it's not a shift, it's not a pivot, it's not... We're now focusing on the Indo-Pacific. And you should definitely demand that when our budget is nearly 50 billion pounds a year, you should be demanding, right, how can we do even more for the nation? And that's what we're looking to do. I think this is an exciting debate. It makes strategic sense. The government's really clear that that's what it expects of us. Um, and then we look at, right, What? how much does this cost? That will be part of the... The, the refresh that's happening in March and april and and some of these big contracts such as AUKUS and and, and Gcap now uh, and the need to invest further in nuclear because because we need a new nuclear warhead when you look in the sort of decades to come those are those are expensive um, issues that needs to be totted up um, and then and then you balance it all out and and, and you have the conversation with government but i to me yeah it's it's too crude to to think like right, we yeah there's there's the there's there's Europe uh, and the Atlantic uh, or the Indo-Pacific it's an and, it's an and conversation and, and the, the first point of call is you should be demanding of us and how do we
2: contribute in both in, in, in both spheres that's a lot of money 50 billion pounds and there's mold in children's bedrooms in ordershot. shops
0: it, it 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 is and that's why it's unacceptable and that's why we're dealing with the mould in, in, in somebody's bedroom. But you deal with the whole lot and that's the, that's the, that's the privilege of, 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 and the responsibility of, of leadership and, and making the right choices and dealing with the problems when they, when they arise, but also shaping for the future and delivering for the nation both in the here and now, which I think this year has been all about, but also shaping for the future and embracing the future with confidence and excitement because the UK armed forces are a superb armed forces and we've got a superb future ahead of us.
2: Are you getting any time off over Christmas? Notwithstanding that you're, you're never off duty. But how do, you, how do you carve out time to rest your mind and, and, and keep, keep, keep fighting through, throughout the tenure of so your command?
0: Uh, I think I, I've, got, I've, I've, I've got a yeah, large family. We've got four, four sons. They'll all be back for Christmas I've got lots of friends at home, so we've got the usual sort of Christmas things that 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 go on with and most of those friends are are not military. So that's that I think that's pretty healthy. The last few months I've done some things where like can I kind of go and carve out time to read novels and just do that to stop this getting sucked in? Can you occasionally carve out time to see a play or two in London to just again stay refreshed? Can you, can you do some fitness, not doing enough, but can I kind of play a bit more squash, a bit more tennis, do all of that? And then can you make the most of, it, of a Christmas period? And, and, and we're doing it. So this week, we're in most of next week because the, 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 there are various meetings going on across Whitehall. There's then a dip in to make sure you stay on top of the intelligence because there's a phenomenal amount of intelligence um, that you need to keep, keep reading and, and, and keep on top of. But within that, you, there's, there's time for a break as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's good.
2: Have you been a good boy this year? What do you think I'd, the, l- I'd like to think so. What do you think the big guy in the ill-fitting suit would say? And I don't mean Ben Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he'd say, well done and get ready for another tough year. Admiral Tony Raddekin, Chief of Defence Staff, thank you so much for
1: your time. Thanks very much, Dom. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Geer. And tomorrow we'll be back on Twitter as normal, with our spaces going at 1pm GMT.